0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going.
1: Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now, stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
2: Publishers and printing, a voice for them all on 3CR.
1: Published or not, every
2: Thursday, 11:30 till noon. Your good morning Jan How are we this David, morning?
1: it's school holidays Did you know that? You're and a retired teacher I'm,
2: Well, retired in a way Yeah, school holidays, but uh, Plenty of opportunity then for kids to Do kids some to reading
1: be, Yes, kids to be doing some reading, also for parents To be listening in, and grandparents Who might need to know of some Good books to buy for their kids
2: And to read to their kids, because that's mm-hmm. Essential, uh, adults reading To children as well, but The reason for this uh, topic of children's literature, we've got some uh, experts with us today. Now, there's a bit of a buzz about the book I have today. It's Bren McDibble's novel. And Bren's sort of a bit of a buzz. She's got butterflies in her stomach. Um, But the book is How to Be. That's B-E-E. So, Bren, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me. That's a great pleasure. This novel is set... In the near future, but there are a few problems.
0: What's going on? Um, It's set in a post-B world um, and post-famine. That's already happened before the novel starts. Um, And children, um, there's a big dichotomy between the rich and the poor, and the poor children have moved out to the country, and they hand-pollinate the fruit trees.
2: But it's not so far into the future that it's unimaginable. It?
0: No, it's actually happening already uh, in a county in China. Um, it's Hanyuan County. And they hand pollinate because they can't afford uh, the farmers there, can't afford to bring the bee trucks in. They can't afford that price of that. So they get people to hand pollinate the flowers but
3: there.
2: Colonies of bees are collapsing. Uh, In quite a number of places, there's quite a bit of concern about
3: that.
0: Yes, especially overseas. There's a couple of diseases, I think, that haven't hit Australia yet, but overseas it's a big problem. And
2: they're worried about them coming here. Yes. But the importance of bees?
0: Yes, the importance of bees. They pollinate everything. Everything not wind-pollinated is insect-pollinated. Yeah,
2: so they are essential. So you'll often see, as I have on my – because my sister and her husband have an orchard – you know the the hives, because they use them to to pollinate the trees, yes. otherwise you've got to do it by hand, which leads into this notion that you've got here of uh these children being bees it's quite a prestige sort of position to be in.
0: Yes, yes. So it's it's just kind of set in that world. That's just natural to them. They all want to be bees um, because that's a prestigious position and you have to be kind of small and lithe and fast. But But slightly dangerous. Slightly dangerous. You can fall out of a tree. You can fall out of a tree.
2: But also, before we get on to the characters, you've divided this then, as you've already uh, alluded to, into the country and the city or the herbs. And it raises a whole series of differences between the two environments.
0: Yes. Whenever anything goes wrong environmentally, it's always the poor people that suffer the most and um, you'll see the rich people can insulate themselves from a lot of problems with money for food. Well, food again, prices will go up and the rich people can still afford to eat. But
2: Funnily enough, it's already happening, the food <laughs> prices.
0: But it raises
2: concerns about values, priorities, things like accommodation and what you actually need to lead a fulfilling life in many yes,
0: ways. Yes. Um, I think there was a report out that the happiest countries are the countries where everybody um, earns a similar amount, even if everybody's poor. So um, my main character's on an orchard and all her friends are all farm kids and they're all happy to be there and happy to be poor. And it's Well, it's, you
2: can actually see an association with what you do has an outcome. Mm, so yes. hand pollinating, living on the land, yeah, living on the land, hand pollinating. You can see the product of that. You
0: see the product, but it all goes off to the rich people in the city.
2: But the the rich people in the city then can't see um, what they have produced. In many ways, th- what they produce is seen in terms of dollar notes and
0: dollar notes. Yes, uh, it's prettily packaged fruit. Yeah, yes.
2: so it's it's a disassociation. Well, our main character is peony. Uh, in fact, all your characters on the farm have uh, or are named after plants, flowers or vegetables, pomegranate, mango joy <laughs> Yes,
0: and apple joy
2: Apple joy and such like um, But as we said, he only wants to be a bee But here's the question You've, you've captured the attitude, the sentiment, the joy of a 10-year-old Yes How were you able to do this?
0: Uh, well, I was a ten-year-old, and I was stroppy, and I was living on a farm and doing a lot of farm work. So I think I just had to reverse back and try and find a voice that explained that, but people might want to listen to.
2: Recapture of- your inner child. Yes. So were you as uh, badly behaved as
0: Gary? Oh, yeah? I was so much worse. Yes. <laughs> <You're> so- <laughs> I was feral. They called us feral.
2: Well, yeah. Most <laughs> most children are at some stage or other. Um, But now the story centres then on uh, the relationship between Peony and Esmeralda. Peony, of course, from uh, the rural world and she's actually, um, well, virtually kidnapped, uh, smuggled away. her
0: her mother has um, dreams of becoming rich and owning a house and doing all this stuff, so she's been working in the city. She takes Peony to the city um, to work... As a maid, basically, in a rich person's house.
2: But there we have Esmeralda. Now, having grown up in the city,
0: what's Esmeralda's problem? Oh, she's terrified of leaving the house. Her Her grandmother ran into some sort of kidnapping issue, and um, so she she just has this agoraphobia, and she doesn't want to leave the house, so she... But it's, it, it's very, sort of
2: like very lonely. the secret garden type yes. attitude where, you know, indulged and mm. looked after. The first encounter between the two is uh, far from conducive <laughs> to a friendship, but it's peony that brings her out of herself. And in many ways, it's the use of imagination, which is um, you, where you've captured the 10-year-old and creating a whole other world... Um, Carrie's actually driven to school, uh, etc., but yes. doesn't like getting out of the car, etc. I wait, holding open the Pasquale's front door after school, and Jonagold waits, holding open the car door. Ez sits, peering out like there's a river of crocodiles to cross. Come on, Miss Esmeralda, Johnagold says, holding out his hand. Ez just stares. <laughs> Johnagold grumbles like he's given up waiting and reaches in to grab Ez. Don't! I say, don't you touch Miss Ez. She don't need a lump like you wrapping their big ugly paws around her arm. Hey, Jonagold says, but he stands up. I kick off my shoes and use them to prop the door open and run over to the car. Miss Ez is just waiting for the music to be just right. I hum the music I heard when her grandmother did the bee dance. The music for the last honeybee. Jonagold's frowning at me, but then he sees Ez sliding closer to the door, pointing out, pointing one toe out. He steps back and taps along to the tune with his fingertips on the door of the car. I point my toes in my stupid white socks and hold my arms like I saw on the TV and take little dancing steps across the courtyard to the front door, humming all the time. Ez gets out of the car, bobs real low with her arms out and then walks. First long-legged steps with her toes pointed out then jiggly little steps on her toes. (laughs) This this imaginary world that 10-year-olds are able to create.
0: Yes.
2: (laughs) Fascinating. But this is what then draws Esmeralda to take on a new identity
0: almost. Yes, yes. Um, Her her grandmother was a a ballerina and her fear arises from her grandmother. So sort of, I don't know, it sort of feels like there's a resolution in taking on the persona of um, a ballet woman, Mm. very proud and composed.
2: But this is what 10-year-olds are able to do, imagine themselves in a whole other world. uh, And this then enables Esmeralda, or Ez, to take on some of the fears of life, so to speak.
0: Yes. Yeah.
2: But then, um, moving to the end of the book, and I'm not going to give anything away about the ending, but you do tackle the subject of death. What made you do that?
0: Um, what the... Well, I don't know why I did that. Um, you know, the nature and everything, there's, there's death, there's life, there's rebirth. Um, mm. And I think I kind, of, I kind of tackle that. She tackles that in her stride and, um, you know. Mm.
2: Well, it's, it's part of that natural world yeah. in which they live. So it's a, rather than being disassociated from it, it's an integral part. Yes. of the lives they lead and they see it in the world around them it's it's part of uh, part of farm life it is uh, that, it is Farm see. kids
0: see a lot of uh, death
2: yeah so um yeah something you, you grow accustomed to and learn not necessarily not to fear but to see as a, as a natural cycle yeah of of things that are taking place yes so um Basically, the book is How To Be, B-E-E, and we're going to do some uh, more discussion later after we talk to Jan's guest about writing for this age group as well. So, Jan, How To Be by Brian McDiddle.
1: Well, I'm not going to talk about bees, but are you a dog person or maybe even a bee person or a cat person? Harry Cruz loves dogs, but he hasn't got one. Paul Collins is the author of Harry Cruz. Born to lose. Welcome, Paul. Thank you, Jen. A dog isn't the only thing Harry hasn't got. He hasn't got a father and he hasn't got a friend. Tell us a bit more about Harry.
3: Well, it makes him want to um, fight a bit harder in life. He's got to overcome all sorts of issues. There's bullying in his life, there's depression, and as you say, a d- bit of a dysfunctional family there. And um, so. One of the things he really wants is a dog, because he, he seems to think that a dog's at least going to be loyal to him and he's going to have that really good friend. He also wants to enter a dog into the annual gala, the school gala, that they have every year and he just watches all these other dogs uh, get entered and he desperately wants this to happen. Um, I can't really give away the ending, can I? Oh, you no, cannot. No, 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 So
1: but his his main bully at school... Gavin Brixton called the brick. You know, he's he's hasn't got the brain size of a cauliflower. He's got the fist size of a cauliflower. Exactly <laughs> it. <laughs> he has a dog, and that dog constin- constantly wins. And um, there's also well, uh, there's a lot about dogs in this book. In fact, I'm going to get David to read about the, the, how you've written about teachers. And dog characteristics, because Paul didn't bring his glasses. I, I, I think
2: I'm going to take exception to this. Dogs and teachers with my background in education. But anyway, here we go. Yeah, let's alienate all the teachers yeah. now. <laughs> I reckon it's because of my love of dogs that I can figure out my teachers. You see, my PE teacher, McPhee, is like a Rottweiler. He takes one look at you and his hackles go up. All his muscles bunch forward around his neck and shoulders like he's about to go for you. He's one teacher who definitely needs to be muzzled. Fitzy, of course, is a Pekingese. Yap, 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 yap! The kind that drives you crazy, or is crazy. Mrs Simone, who teaches French, would have to be a poodle and looks like one too. She always seems to walk on her toes, moves as if she's a a catwalk model and holds her head in the air like somebody's making a move of her. Mr. Granger, who takes English and history as more of a German shepherd, you know, friendly, reliable, always there for you. If I had a dog, I wouldn't mind having one like him. I mean, like a German shepherd. Mrs. Meyer is my science teacher, and she would be a greyhound. She's very thin, but plays squash at competition level, so she must be very wiry and fast. ah, and, oh, and the principal, Mrs. Banschaff, she'd have to be an enormous basset hound, the kind that's too friendly, too inquisitive, and way too good at snooping and out wrongdoing. And even when she's giving out you detention, she looks at you with those big, brown, sad eyes as though you're the deepest disappointment of her
3: life.
1: (laughs) Thank you, David.
3: David just read about himself in there. He was the German shepherd when he was teaching. (laughs) Yeah, but the the good thing about German shepherds is they're also attack dogs and
2: they know when to attack if needed. (laughs) And if you go for the jugular on a child, you can often, you know, win. Well,
1: the teacher that actually has got the, characteristic, the characteristics of the German Shepherd is by far the nicest teacher to have. He's Harry an English Cruz. teacher, of course he is. <laughs> and it's because of this teacher that Harry Cruz is writing down his wishes. And one of his wishes is that he never has to go back to Fitzy, that little yappy um, terrier, because Fitzy is a school psychologist. So, what's causing Harry all, all, most of his problems?
3: Well, I suppose it began when uh, his father left home and uh, he doesn't know what's happened to him. It's sort of kept pretty much quiet from him. So there is the, um, he's the shortest boy in school as well, which doesn't really help his uh, self-image. So he's got a few of those little image um, issues happening there. And as I said before about the bully, and uh, the bullies will always pick on the uh, defenceless uh, if you sort of stand up to them and fight them back, which I did as a kid. I mean, I, I was bullied. Uh, when I was a kid, and um, I I remember fighting back. Of course, I lost the fight and had my hair pulled and I was spat at and all those things, but um, I think if you fight back, it's the last time he ever did anything to me. (laughs) So, of course, Harry's Harry's trying to fight back. He doesn't at first in in the book, but... um, He
1: also wishes, one of his wishes, is that he wants to be a writer, and it's Mr Granger, the English teacher, who has told him things like, the pen is mightier than the sword, and if you really want a wish to come true... Then the best way to make it happen is to write it down. So early on, you've given um, Harry—you know—he's—he's he's written down a lot of his wishes. Another wish is for his mother to go back to normal. So what's normal, and what's she doing now?
3: <laughs> <laughs> is there such a thing as normal? Uh, his normal is the way she used to be. Um, Of course, she's having. Well, can I say she's? Yeah, spoiler alert here. Um, She's sort of seeing someone, and uh, but we don't. We don't don't know who he is at the time.
1: This this brings in a, a lovely little term that I haven't heard before, an almost conversation. And Harry has this going through his head. What he would like to ask his mother is, "Are you seeing somebody, Mum? Are you going to run off and get married and have a second family like Dad? And if you do, what?" Happens to me. (laughs) So that's what he'd like to say. But when the mother asks, you know, what's wrong? What what, what are you shaking? I looked at the floor. It's nothing, nothing at all. I have the art of the almost conversation down pat. Mm. I sort of look at kids and I think, yeah, sometimes. I think,
3: especially these days, it always seems to revolve around the kids themselves. Um, I mean, when, when I was that age, uh, Harry's, what, 13 in the book, uh, we were seen and not heard, basically. Well, it's completely the opposite now, isn't it? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Well, mom, uh, Harry's mum runs a boarding house. That's how she earns money. And there's a knock on the door and a new boarder comes, Jack Alice. He brings his pipe and his stories. What are the stories about?
3: Well, they're um, all dog stories, of course, and uh, some of the stories will be familiar with the reader's. Um, can I mention titles?
1: Oh, sort of gives, oh Look, this yeah. is the one that Spoiled I fell in love with: "The Loaded Dog." <laughs> You've got to have Henry the loaded dog. Lawson, mm. fantastic story, and of course, you know it's it's retold here through Jack Alice, and then there's there's other there's stories about him, and this is important because of Henry Lawson. What's coming up in June?
3: Ah, uh, the hundred and fiftieth anniversary
1: of Henry Lawson. Of Henry so it's very apt that we have this story and his other some of his other um, yes. dog stories in here. But there's also one that you've made up, Paul Collins, mm. and it's the dog that wasn't. Just one, one, three lines. You can tell the story.
3: Ooh, well these are going to be long lines. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, basically, yeah. Uh, He's, um, Jack is telling a story about uh, how he was going to the gold fields to make his fortune and he's warned that there are some claim jumpers where he's going and he should take a a weapon of some kind, so he decides that uh, he's not into guns and things, so he's going to take a dog. And the local police station have a dog tied up the the back, its owner has died, it's a very vicious dog, it was imported from overseas, and it's the size of a tiger, etc. So anyway, Jack makes friends with the dog, the police release the dog. Uh, into his hands and he goes to the, uh, the goldfields. The claim jumpers do try to jump his uh, claim and, of course, the dog sees them off the property, so to speak. Um, limbs are ripped here and there. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a
1: fabulous explanation story. The kids, I think, would love reading it. Oh, the yeah, I think they,
3: they would. But
1: really what happens in the end is the dog disappears and Jack can't really work out whether it ever existed because he asked people and they said, no, we didn't see that dog. Mm.
3: Well, of course, that in a sense mirrors the boy's journey as well there's there's Absolutely. a, bit of a cross, cross reference there but
1: as jack says another quote from the book most folk will tell you that seeing is believing but they got it plumb backwards and that's a fact <laughs> so we're left in this whole idea of you know finally we, we see um, harry come with get french get courage and out of that friendship and a dog but ah oh, there's this mystery mystery around it Mm. So Harry, I must say, is thirteen years old, a bit older mm. than your um, yes.
2: Pearlie. But that raises the notion of writing for that age group. How do you place yourself in that framework? Um, I mean, Paul, how would you capture the voice of?
3: That's, I mean, I, I don't have children, so um, I don't have that uh, close association there. I, I think it's intuitive. There's I no, mean, I've never done a writing course or anything like that. I've, um, it just feels feels right to me. I have written a fair few books. And um, when you write a story, you don't actually target it at a certain age. Would do you yes. agree with that,
0: Brian? Yes. I think you'd um, I was talking to Gabrielle Wang about this. Um, she, she writes um, strong characters because she was never strong, she said, when she was a girl. So the age group she writes, she writes much stronger characters. And I think we're, we've all sort of got unresolved issues around our childhood. <laughs> and we go back and we try to create – New ones, and um by what new problems <laughs> well just Solvable resolve problems. them <laughs> and create new worlds in which there are different social laws in which our children can sort of work, so Gabrielle's created like Hushing wood, which is this world where her character can be strong in different social laws, so she can fit in and and my character is a is a future that's slightly different with different rules, and this child believes she can be like you know, the the foreman of the orchard one day because, you know, mm. these are the rules to the orchard and she knows them and she knows everything about the orchard.
2: But these, these worlds that you've created are, are dysfunctional as well. There's a there's that element of dysfunction. I have to be realistic. <laughs> <laughs> so, but life is dysfunctional, is that what you're saying?
3: Well, the science fiction stuff I've mostly written is um, dystopian, so uh, everything's gone wrong uh, because that gives you... A whole heap of uh, fodder, really, yes. doesn't it, Bryn, to, to write about? It uh, does. When, when it things does. have gone wrong, you're going to try and fix them or you're going to have your characters play within that world and uh, that's basically what my characters do. But it's not
2: so far-fetched in terms of it's identifiable. Um, yes. The family dysfunction with the mother um, and school, those basic tropes that most children have had to
3: contend with. Yeah, well, in contemporary fiction... You can also bring some of your own life into it. There, there are some facts from my life in in that book. Um, some of the dogs' names, for example, come from dogs I've actually known, and you know, there's there's a bit of that in there as well. Yes. So yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I, I just sort of wonder about kids' fiction. You know, you, you, there's a lot of it out there, and well, to you, Paul Collins, you've actually got a publishing company that deals basically in kids' fiction. Yes. How do you sort the good from the bad?
3: I think that, again, that's an intuitive thing. That's a gut feeling. Um, some of the books that I publish, um, Thinking of "Pool" by Justin Darth, rejected by four or five major publishers. One oh, what, didn't win. It was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's mm-hmm. Award. Um, Crossing the Line by Di Bates, uh, shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Award, rejected by several publishers. So mm-hmm. it's sometimes... Um, I think the major publishers don't – well, they get it wrong sometimes. I mean, The Wimpy Kid had been rejected by certain publishers as well. Before the it was Wimpy published. Kid? The Wimpy Kid. I, oh, could, no. I could name here, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to because it might have been told to me in confidence, so I'm not oh, going to mention names. right. Yeah. But um, – oh, Harry Potter, for yes, example, rejected 10, 11 times. Um, sometimes they've got um, a similar book on their list about to come out, so they're not going to take Harry Potter. I mean, there could have been legitimate reasons, not that they thought it was lousy or wasn't going to sell.
1: Can I say, I'm so pleased these
3: books aren't about vampires. (laughs) (laughs) I have published some vampire books.
1: (laughs) I'm not surprised. I think everybody did. But I, I think that's what the only thing that
0: publishers were looking for for a while.
2: Yes. So, Bren, do you write for the publisher and what the publisher wants, or do you write for no, your own
0: No, I write for myself. I I've been writing for sixteen years, and it wasn't till I just sort of. Stopped thinking about what the market wanted and just started writing for myself that I started to develop these individual voices. And I think it was the voices that caught the publisher's attention finally. Plus, I mean, the bee has some environmental issues that are also really good. But the voice, I think, is what really made them sit up and say, hey –
3: because the reader has to identify with the character yes. through that voice. Yeah, I, I think um, also publishers hate that question. I, I know it got back to me that a certain publisher hated me when I asked her, uh, what, what are you looking for? It's not what they're looking for really, it's what's unique, what yeah. speaks, and the X factor is the, is the uh, term. Yeah. They want something with the X factor. It's but not they keep asking something.
2: that same question though, where does it fit, uh, what mm. category, what genre... In many Mm. ways. So uh, marketing departments often ask that question because they want to know,
3: whereas a unique voice often goes beyond those boundaries. That's possibly why some of those books fall through the cracks and smaller publishers can pick them up.
1: Mm. 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 (laughs) Now, um, back to Brian here – You're doing a writing course under Cheryl Clark, and if if anybody's been listening to this program for a long,
2: she's tutoring Tutoring. in writing under Cheryl
1: Clark. Yes. (laughs) Well, what do you say to Paul
0: who's never done a writing course? (laughs)
3: Oh, that's putting you on the (laughs)
2: spot.
3: (laughs) you like We've got a
2: copy of Paul's book here. (laughs) Would you like to this.
0: I don't know that. He needs to do a writing course. Um, Can
2: can you make a better writer through a writing course? We've got writers that have been in here saying we've never done a course and those that have then been picked up because of the writing course they've done and how it's led on to other
3: things.
0: There's a lot of information you can access on the internet. Uh, from other writers, from going to talks, you don't necessarily have to pick all that all that up in a writing course, but you can be guided with information in a writing course. Um, and a lot of what you will learn by by reading or going to um, cons and stuff, and just listening to writers, a lot of it is very similar information. So you really have to try and decide where what you need. Um, What information is going to help you, and then start trying to find really amazing writers who are really actually divulging really honest stuff, and and try and figure out how you know what techniques are they using.
2: The other course that needs to be offered is writers who are coming in for their first interview on radio and how to handle that so that they can be a success. This is Bren's first interview. Oh, welcome! Yes,
1: welcome. Doing very, doing
2: very well. Yes, indeed. You have a question, a <laughs> True Brit. <prayer. laughs>
1: I know I could but it, it just well so with the writing how, do you sort of explain to you, the people writing for you how to get it into a publisher? How to how to move it across from writing to on the page, editing it, moving it.
0: Um getting it ready for a publisher or approaching publishers? Do you both. Move? Both. Well, yeah. Um we talk about editing and, and pacing and, and um, using voice and stuff. We we talk about all that and getting ready and getting feedback and taking feedback. Um, yeah, but the publishers in Australia are all very approachable. You you don't necessarily need an agent for Australia. You wouldn't need an agent for the US. But in Australia, they have things like um, Friday pitch sessions or they run... Contest, text-runner contest, and Hardy Grant run the Ampersand Prize. Alan um, and Unwin had a Friday pitch. You can get your work to them. You can get it read. Um, and if it's, you know, if it's got something that captures their attention.
1: Can I just move it across to now Paul Collins, who's um, has... Four has a publishing home, house. Has a publishing <laughs> house. What about editing, Paul? Because that's one of the things we find with self-published books mm. that, that we have through here, that they need to be edited even again.
3: Well, I think you can see the obvious things. I mean, the, the grammatical errors, the, um, the spelling, um, the overwritten uh, pages where they might waffle onto something that just doesn't really relate to the rest of the book, so that can come out. There's a, there's a lot of um, work that goes into into books, especially novels, structural edits. Mm. Structural where, edits, Where yes. things are, yeah, are wrong. And I think um, the trouble with, with a self-published author could be that they don't get edited and they think what they've written is, is good. I mean, I, I self-published a book when the biggest mistake of my writing career was self-publishing a book I'd written when I was about 17. I mean, I, I thought it was crash hot too. But, you know, you look back on it now... And uh, no one's got a copy, fortunately. The National Library yeah. actually um, okay, emailed so. me. They, they, they were looking for this book. You have this book. It was called Hot Lead Cold Sweat. It was Western. And uh, Westerns <laughs> were big in those days, in my defence. And uh, they asked me for it. And I said, well, it was published, but I've only got one copy, so you can't have it. So the National oh. Library doesn't have a copy. No. <laughs> should well, you know, have given many? it to them for posterity. No, 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 no How no. many
1: editors do you employ? Or do you actually expect the... I have,
3: I have freelance editors. Most of them have worked for Penguin, Walker Books and people like that They've since left full-time employment. And now they freelance. And just very briefly on the, um, the writing courses, I think they offer a shortcut. They can show you how to lay out a picture book. For instance, it starts on page four. It doesn't start on page one. And all those sorts of mm. things, they, they can really do a shortcut for submitting.
1: Look, I want to thank Paul Collins.
3: And I want to thank Bren McDibble. Uh, Bren's book, How to
2: Be, Alan and Unwin.
1: And um, Paul's, Harry Cruz, Born to Lose by Ford Street. Mm-hmm. And thank you both for joining in our conversation here on Published or Not. Thanks, See you Jane, next week. It.